Lord, we come to you as a people who can easily become entangled in sin. We can easily become fatigued in life and want to quit the thought of following Christ or doing the things that you bid us to do. And so we come to you as a people who need to hear your word. We need to know what it is that we are, uh, the provisions that you've made for us, and we pray that you would help us to understand more clearly how you work in our lives, and that we may be um, encouraged and strengthened and given um, a renewed spirit to be faithful in our following of Jesus and in serving him and his kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I must say that I am very blessed this morning to stand before you as a human father, blessed with three grown kids, and uh, blessed to see them married, and now blessed to be a new grandfather. If you'd like to see a picture of my grandson, just ask me any time, be glad to show you. Uh, Still waiting for those eyes, pictures with the eyes open, we're waiting on those, but anyway, I am glad and I am thankful, but I must say to you that I feel somewhat sad on this Father's Day. Not on a personal level, sad in the sense, I guess, that I'm not with my adult children today, but mostly on a larger societal level, I feel sad. Because I feel sad over the number of kids in our generation, in our society today, that are growing up in this world, spending little to no time with their human fathers. Some of them are facing the situation that that's because of divorce, and so they spend most of their time with their mother and very rarely see their father. Others, it's due to the fact that the fathers have never really been on the scene, and they've always been absent, and they're they're not even known. Others, it's because the fathers would like to spend time with them, but because of things from their past, they're incarcerated, or others are deployed somewhere due to war or military service. So there's a sense in which the sadness on Father's Day is even made more profound when you think about those of us who love so dearly our own human fathers, and because of death, they're no longer here with us. I miss my dad sorely. I'm actually wearing a pair of shoes that he owned uh, that still fit me, and I wear them and think about them all the time. He's got big, big feet to fill, big shoes to fill, to be like my father. I'm aware also that I'm speaking this morning to those among us who grieve and who have, as as human fathers, have seen their own adult sons recently die. And so I'm aware that I'm speaking um, into a world in which we all have longings, longings for things to be different from what they actually are, longing for more and loving fathers, more devoted fathers more time with their kids, more exemplary fathers. These are the things we long for. I'm also aware that as I begin this message on Father's Day that obviously many of you today are not fathers. I'm very aware of that. And now with all of those things swirling around in my heart and soul, I would like to direct your attention this morning to a relevant passage for all of us today, not just fathers 
all of us, no matter who you are, in this passage of the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 12, I hope you have a copy of it open in front of you. Your screen is on or your Bible is open there, a few Bible. This passage, we find help, not just for fathers. Yes, there's help there for them. And not just for children, but for all of the children of God. For any and all who are suffering, for any and all who are sad this morning, for any and all who are cynical about families in general, or about families specifically, God provides encouragement. God provides life-changing insights in this text of Scripture. I commend it to you. I hope you will read it and read it and read it and find this to be something that God just burns into your soul and you realize, oh, what an insight I have. I never would have known this about God. I never would have realized it. Because the author of this book, who I'm not going to reveal his name because I have no idea what his name is. But the author of Hebrews wrote to a community of, say it, Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish folk predominantly, almost exclusively. And in writing to this band of Hebrews, we understand that most of them are made up of true believers who have come in faith to Jesus the Messiah. But we also know that there's a number of them who are not fully committed to Jesus as Messiah. They are on the perimeter. They're thinking about making the jump into commitment, but they're not fully there yet. And so he's writing to this group of Hebrews. And a good number of these people are now at the point in their life where they're beginning to have some questions, some doubts, some second thoughts about, I'm not sure about following this Jesus the Messiah. It's not working out like I thought it was going to work out. If you look in the text there in Hebrews chapter 10, at the, at the end of that chapter, begin to notice that they have begun to taste the sour taste, if you will, of persecution because of their association with this Jesus as Messiah. They're beginning to experience some hardship. Verses 32 to 34, he mentions the fact that some of their property has been seized. He mentions also that they've now begun to encounter tribulation. All sorts of pressure on their lives is now ratcheted up. And so this time in their life is difficult. Look at just verse 4 of chapter 12. He says, You have not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood, but some have. The writer of Hebrews reminds them that the true, true faith, a response of faith is what they're called to do here. To have full assurance and confidence in the fact that God has not fully come through on everything He's promised when we do surrender to follow Christ as Messiah and Lord. That's the point. Chapter 11 contains a, a whole listing here of people, an honor roll of Old Testament saints, people who had stepped out and said, yes, I'm going to take God at His word, I'm going to respond in faith. And so it lists those in chapter 11, a number of them. Each one attests to the value of living by faith. But as you read through the chapter, and I hope you'll do that at some point, you will find that some of them obviously experienced great success. And there were marvelous breakthroughs in their lives. But there were others, as he, as he faithfully records, that during their lifetime they suffered immeasurably. 
even though they were walking on the path of faith. And then he lists as another example is Jesus the Messiah himself. Chapter 12, verse 1. He is the greatest example of faith. There could be no one greater than Jesus in his life of faith, but even Jesus was not spared persecution. Even he died upon a cruel Roman cross in shame, mistreatment. He was not spared. Even though his faith was flawless, he nonetheless died on a cross. He despised that shame. And yet his faith was vindicated by his resurrection from the dead. And so he's saying, rather than quitting The author of Hebrews is urging his readers to keep running the race. Don't stop. Don't quit. Run the race that God has laid out before you. Verses 1 to 3 there, right? Don't throw in the towel. Now let's pause for a second and just realize that some of this background helps us understand what he's saying, but now let's think about us and our background. Where are we coming from when we come to this text? Some of us are struggling to understand and cope with our afflictions. And the author of Hebrews is going to speak not only to his generation, he's going to speak to our generation. He's going to remind us that in the midst of things that seem like you were thinking it was going to go one way, it goes another way. And you're called to trust God in the middle of all that. He's going to remind us of what? He's going to remind us of the, of the incredible love of your Heavenly Father for His children. He appeals to the readers here, the writer of Hebrews, he reminds them that God uses trials, God uses hardships as part of His loving dealing with His own children. And it may be material loss that you've gone through or the people there in the first century. Maybe it's physical suffering. Maybe it's emotional suffering. There's been a a breakdown in a relationship that's extremely painful and and, uh, difficult to deal with. There's maybe social injustice that you've had to face or are facing. These things are in our path that we come to an encounter. We can't go around them. We have to face them in our life. And we say to ourselves, where's God? The writer of Hebrews says, listen, God is encountering you right here. He is now dealing with you in love. Maybe this is a text of Scripture that begins to make you question, am I a child of God? Are you really a follower of Jesus? How you respond to trials and afflictions is oftentimes the revealing of what's really in your heart. Is there faith? Well, this is where your faith begins to be seen. So the text of Scripture is so rich here, there's so much. And so for the next four hours, we're going to just enjoy exploring the riches. You're not with me on this? All right, I'll try to make my way through it as best we can. Here's what I want to say, though, is we, before we look into it. God's love leads him to discipline his children, just as human fathers disciplined their own children as a result of and by the motivation of their love for their children. So that's our main headings there. We find, first of all, love in action. Point number one, human fathers discipline their children. Why is this brought into the text here? Why is the author of Hebrews quoting Proverbs 
at the beginning here and he says, verse 5, have you forgotten what the scriptures say? How could you forget this? This is something every Jewish child would have heard reading this scripture. Obviously, the book of Proverbs was written and it contains, by the way, a treasure trove of godly wisdom for parents in dealing with their children, particularly a father who speaks to his son, speaks to his daughter. This divinely inspired instruction assumes that children are not born with wisdom. They do not have, by virtue of just entering the world, all of this wonderful wisdom given to them. Matter of fact, we are born with a natural bent toward foolishness. If you have your Bible, again, look at it, or you can get on your screen, Proverbs 22:15. See if you can find that just for a second. 22:15. And I've listed a number of these verses there in the notes. I urge you to look them up at a subsequent time. The cumulative effect of reading all these, I hope, will push back some of your own bias and our own way of thinking and realize God's ways truly are best and wisest. He says in 22.15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That is not common thought in today's world. Now when I say foolishness, I'm not talking about goofiness. I'm not talking about somebody who's just not very sharp and they don't have a good way of analyzing things. I'm talking about a person whose heart indicates that they lack wisdom, they pretty much love evil, and they hate what is holy. They're undisciplined, unreliable, unpleasant, and they're a person who is in desperate need of a new heart. That's a person whose heart is bound by foolishness. And according to the scriptures, children are characterized by this kind of impulsiveness, immaturity, they're resistant to authority. I don't think I ever had my children walk up to me and say, Dad, I am so thrilled to be able to do what you're telling me to do at this moment. It just thrills my heart. I never heard that when I told them to take out the trash or to clean up their room or whatever. I didn't say it to my father either, so make the record clear. But children live predominantly for their own immediate gratification of their wants and their desires. And they often act with little or no forethought. They just do something, right? They don't think about it. Left to themselves, they will oftentimes insist it makes perfect sense in their mind. It makes perfect sense to eat at every meal chicken nuggets and to stay up all hours of the night. That's the best way to live. That's the way a child thinks, some children. Left to themselves, children invariably make unwise choices. They easily develop patterns of, left to themselves, rudeness, irresponsibility, disrespect toward God and toward those in authority. I don't know that I need to give you lots of stories about that. That is just, that's just drawn from observation in life, but also because of the reading the scriptures. Sadly enough, many children stubbornly insist that their way is right. They assume they know better than those who are supposedly in charge. And it saddens me to see more and more how skilled children can become when they deal with their parents or the person in charge, whoever that may be, as manipulators. They are very skilled manipulators. Because a child, when they don't get their way, what do they do? 
Well, at one stage of life, they'll scream, they'll have a, a fit, a tantrum, they'll fall apart in the middle of a store, act like they've completely lost their mind. They will complain when the food is set before them. Oh, I'm not eating that again. Oh. They'll whine, they'll slam doors, they'll stomp their feet, they'll shift the blame to somebody else. It's amazing the skills that they possess in seeking to what? I want the what I want, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. And sadly, many people give in to that, and therefore they've reinforced that behavior, and so the child does it all the more. Now, I just want to indicate here that left to themselves, look at the quote there in your notes, children are in grave danger because of this foolishness that is bound up in their hearts. The quote here by Ted Tripp, and I will just again unashamedly and uh, with great, if I can get it in my hand, uh, encouragement, endorse this book, Shepherding the Heart of Your Child. I'm going to give a copy of this to all my uh, children who are having children. I'm going to ask them to wear it out, read it ten times, and then read it again. It has a lot of biblical wisdom in it. It is just saturated with biblical wisdom. I wish I had had it when I was younger. He says this, A young child who is refusing to be under authority is in a place of grave danger. I don't think many of us believe that. I think in our today's world, we're taught a child who is now thrown off the shackles of authority has found freedom in real life. No way, my friend. That's not true at all. But in the wisdom of God, God has given loving parents a vital mission. Fathers, and yes, we'll include mothers here too, are called by God to rescue our children from the road of foolishness. And how do we do that? Proverbs 29, 15, the second part of the verse says this. Because of our kids being on the road of foolishness that leads to destruction, disaster, the rod of discipline will remove foolishness far from our children. God has prescribed a number of ways to avoid our children from going down the path of destruction because of their headed and being motivated by this heart of foolishness. We can use verbal gifts, the idea of using our speech to instruct, our speech that would warn our children, a speech that helps our children to be encouraged to offer the kinds of affirmation and encouraging words. They need to hear all of those things and much more from us without screaming at them. But they also need the gift that God has made it made known, and that is the corporal gift of punishment. I'm sorry, of discipline, excuse me, not punishment. That's a very bad word I selected there because that was the exact opposite of what I want to say. Fathers are God's authority figures to teach their children to learn to live under human authority and under God's authority. When I learned to obey my father, who had to oftentimes pull me aside, speak to me directly, calmly, but firmly, explain what I did that was wrong, explain to me that he loved me, explain to me that he sought to uh, do what he's going to do as, as something that was painful to him. Which, by the way, I said, I don't buy that at all. Because I felt the pain soon thereafter. 
But boy, did I see it differently once I became a father. I was the one saying those same words. My kid looking up at me like, you've lost your mind. doesn't make any sense. I knew exactly what he was thinking. Children must learn that in God's ordered world, and this is what I learned through my father. My father taught me to learn to obey him because ultimately I had to learn to obey his authority because God had extended him authority under his, under his plan, and therefore I need to learn to submit to God. And my heart goes out to children today who are never taught to yield to any authority. And that's why they are shaking their fist at God. And they're in a very dangerous place, indeed. Children must learn that God's ordered world requires them to submit to authority and that they are not equal in authority to their parents. It's not appropriate for children to say to their parents in defiance, no, I'm not going to do what you say. That child is what? Headed toward danger. They're in a dangerous situation talking back, telling the parent what they, they, are, they are, are or are not going to do. We see it all the time. I know the modern view of discipline, the modern view of spanking, I'm familiar with all of those articles, all the experts. I'm also aware that it's commonly viewed as abusive and barbaric. And I want you to be very clear on this matter here. Discipline, according to God's guidelines, is never meant to be punishment. And that's why I regret saying the word earlier. It's not to be punishment. It's not what we're, that's not what you should be thinking as you read this passage of Scripture. The objective of a godly father's discipline is never retribution. It's never about his wrath being poured out on this child. That's not what is God's talking about at all here. It's not a venting of anger toward the child in an uncontrolled way. If that's what you have in mind, that's not what God is talking about. That is abuse. It's never intended to communicate to any child any form of condemnation on that child. Rather, loving godly discipline is always measured, always controlled, and aimed at instilling virtues in their child trying to draw their child into understanding and building upright character traits and qualities because the father or the mother loves that child. An undisciplined child can be and often is unpleasant to be around. Do we know what that's like? You ever been in a restaurant where the, a child is running around, screaming, grabbing, looking, exploring, no control over that child at all. Now listen, we all have had meltdowns in restaurants. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the child who no one seems to concerned about it. Nobody's doing anything. It just goes on and on and on. I'll never forget a wedding I went to one time when the little ring bearer was, I don't know how old he was, three years old, whatever. And uh, so he's, he did his, does his little thing, but he's walking around and mom is in, is in the wedding party. And so she, he's supposed to stand by her while she lets him go. And he's He's going all over the place, steps on the bride's uh, veil and pulls her over almost where she fell, and then finally sits down with grandma or grandpa or dad or somebody in the front pew, and they let him go again. Just let him go. Here he goes. I'm thinking, yikes. Who's in charge here? What's my point? A loving father, despite the whining, despite the disrespect, uncooperative spirit, 
the belligerence, the desire to run the show. A loving father is going to do what? Discipline his child with a love, that wanting to return that child. Instead of being in the realm of danger, bring them into the realm of blessing, of living under God's authority, living under parental authority. And our children can gain such an awareness in this process of confronting them in a loving and controlled and appropriate fashion that they are now begin to understand that they have consequences of evil and wrong behavior. And that principle of learning that when I do wrong, there is that which is a, an unpleasant result is a wonderful way to shape my heart to learn to say I want to turn from sin because of the ultimate fallout on the day of accountability and the need to humbly repent before God. Now, this passage makes very clear that children are not to they don't they, that children don't respond to discipline all in the same way. Did you catch that? Verse five. Some children, when they're disciplined, they dismiss it. They regard it lightly. The text says. Sometimes children are stubborn, and they don't want to be taught. They think they're right, no matter what. And oftentimes, their obstinacy is revealed in that process. And so even though they go through the process of receiving a spanking, later on, they just go right back to the same thing. They don't really care. Others, however, having been corrected and disciplined, don't require as much of that process because why? They easily faint when they're disciplined. They feel sorry for themselves. They complain. They say that life is unfair to them. Oh, what a blessing it is when children take to heart the painful correction received from a loving father who loves them enough to help them understand the importance of turning from the, from the evil choices and wrong behavior they've just done. Think of the lifetime of fruit that comes to the life of a child. It may come. There's no guarantee. But to think of a child that's now been trained by the loving discipline of a father who's been under control and who has done these things in a way that's following God's ways. The child has a submission to authority. The child learns self-control. The child learns honesty. The child learns strong sense of personal responsibility. I mean, what a blessing. What a blessing to see those qualities developed in a child. The text assumes, of course, here, this is the final principle I'm going to notice here under the first heading. Fathers are not to go around disciplining other people's children. Did you notice that? Fathers discipline their own child. Their own child. So a father is urged to demonstrate his love for his own children by taking specific steps to train his own children so his own children will reject foolish ways and foolish approaches to life. So I want to cheer you on, any young fathers, anybody who still has influence on their young children as a father, pursue God's way and your role that God has given you. Don't give up. And you grandfathers, get out of the way and let your children discipline their children. And don't you bribe them and don't you inter intervene in that child and try to shield the child from dealing with those serious consequences from your adult children. Let them do what you know should be done rather than how you feel at that moment in looking at your poor little grandchild. All right? Second point I want to make here, and that's more broadly made, 
you want to look at love in action, just remember our Heavenly Father disciplines His children. What an important insight the author of Hebrews sets forth here in this passage. That it is not incongruent to say that God, in His love, is at work in the midst of hardships and trials and afflictions in this life. And that God, in His love, takes these kinds of difficulties and sees them as His child training process. It's his tool to teach and reach the hearts of his children. It's a fascinating insight that the author of Hebrews is developing here. Now, I'm the first to tell you that I'm not a marathon runner. I think the longest I've ever run at one time was about three miles. I thought I was going to die. It was awful. I couldn't wait to stop. It was down in uh, North Carolina on the, um, I can't even say the name of the road we were on there, um, and Smoky, uh, in the Smoky Mountains. And we were run, running along this road that I have a friend of us going with. But there are those people, and I don't understand why anyone does and how they could do it, but there are those who run in marathons. 26.2 miles. Miles! Not 26 laps around the track in high school, okay? I assure you that people that run marathons don't just show up one day on an impulse, and say, oh, I think I want to run that marathon. They don't just show up and say, oh, I think I'm going to, you know, take this one on. Haven't run, uh, you know, in weeks, months, or years. Smart runners are going to do what? They're going to consult a trainer. They're going to consult people around them who have run marathons, who know what goes on, and they're going to find out the areas where they're weak. And they're going to address those areas through better nutrition, making sure they got the proper equipment with shoes or whatever it is, and strategy on how to respond when certain things happen and you feel a certain way. They develop a plan of exercise, a plan for their eating, a plan for everything so they can begin to anticipate to overcome their weaknesses. That's why I've never done a marathon, because I know it would be a waste of time to do all those things. I'm not going to run that far. But God uses discipline to help his children gain endurance, to help us refine our faith. And ignoring God when he is striving to work in our hearts in the midst of trials, eventually, if we keep ignoring the fact that God is trying to teach us things and instruct our hearts, is that eventually you're going to realize you have spiritual atrophy. You have become spiritually weak. You're not in good shape. And God is using these things in life to draw you close to himself, to deepen your faith. And oftentimes, you notice there, verse 3, the author is very concerned that some people in life are weary and they're going to lose heart, spiritually speaking. So the good news in this text is that God never wastes trials. He never wastes heartaches and headaches that we endure in this world. He calls us to run the race of life. Keep our eyes on Jesus. And why is that? Why is he saying keep your eyes on Jesus as part of this understanding of how he deals with us in love, disciplining us? Because Jesus went through sufferings according to the will of God. God was at work when Christ was on that cross. This was part of his will, his plan. 
And even Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. You don't believe that? Look at Hebrews chapter 5. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Now, Jesus doesn't have to develop his character because his character was perfect. He had a submissive spirit. His sufferings merely confirmed his obedience to the will of his Father. His sufferings made it clear that God's will was being lived out in his life as God says, I want to provide a way where sinners can be reconciled to God and they can therefore be forgiven, be cleansed, and be given a new heart through the substitutionary work of someone dying on their own behalf because, because we sin, we deserve to die. We deserve to be cut off from God. You see, God uses sufferings, the process of discipline, to prove, to test, and in the case of us as sinners, really to change our character, to make us different than what we currently are. So that rather, question, rather than questioning God's love when we endure sufferings, we're urged really to rest in God, to rest in His sovereign wisdom, to rest in His loving treatment of us, to respect Him as one who is sovereign in His authority. He has brought certain things into your life. Learn to yield to that, to understand that He is the one who brought that into your path by His design. What a complete opposite teaching we find in this passage in Hebrews 12 from the prosperity gospel. It is just outlandish what these people will say, these false teachers, talking about, well, God wants all of us to have a life that's full of much wealth and much health and happiness and everything, a problem-free life? No, God wants what's best for you, but His best for you often means that He is going to train you and teach you so that you'll become conformed to His character. Turn with me in, your, in the Psalms 119, if you would, just for a second. Back to Psalm 119, the largest chapter in the English Bible in the Hebrew Bible, in the Greek Bible, I guess, any Bible, I guess, it's the longest chapter of verses, Psalm 119. And after reading the Word of God again and again and again, trying to understand God's dealings, which is what we need to do here in this passage in Hebrews 12, verse 67, Psalm 119. The psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. He's, he is acknowledging that his response Toward God was often he didn't trust him. He would go off and trust something else or he would turn to God, turn away from God when he had stress or problems in his life. When I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. What was the teaching process there? The affliction. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Isn't it true that oftentimes we're better students when we're in the school of suffering and pain and stress and problems? We're much more in tune or listening to God, much more teachable, much more focused. See, the psalmist realized that rather than hardening his heart in a time of difficulty, his heart was trained by these very difficult circumstances. And what does God do in those circumstances if I'm going through affliction? Oftentimes, he may be correcting you, or he could be warning you, protecting you from something, trying to keep you away from that, what you're pursuing. Or he could be educating you about something, drawing you closer to an understanding of who God is and God's dealings and his ways, which is much different than you would ever assume. 
So what's the crucial element here to somehow counter the temptation to quit, to want to give up, to lose heart in faith, lose heart in following after Christ? And the answer is faith. Faith, relying and trusting in God. Confident trust is going to look beyond the immediate problem that you're looking at and look into the, the ultimate of what God has before us. God's discipline will later yield a valuable harvest. Did you notice that in the text? He says in verse 11, now we're back in Hebrews 12, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. By the way, that seems to me to teach that just doing time out with your children is not enough at a certain stage when they're very young. Time out is not going to teach painful enough the lessons they need to learn to submit. I'm not saying it can't ever be used. I'm just saying he talks about uh, the moment not to be joyful but sorrowful. And yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. I'm back now to God's dealings. And he ultimately wants to see the fruit of peaceable righteousness in us. Did you notice in verse 10, one more insight about God and I'm done. God is not going to abdicate his responsibility as our Heavenly Father to somehow think, I'm not going to require my child to have to do all this training. I'm just going to let him slip on past all that stuff. No, God's not going to do that. God doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves, to somehow figure it all out, somehow move toward maturity on our own little self-instruction process. No. God is going to bring into my life, in His own sovereign plan, He's going to permit various difficult things in our lives. Look at verse 10. He does it for our good. If you believe that, that will rock your world every time you go through the fiery trials of discipline. If you believe that what God is doing is for your good, it will change the way you view God. It will change the way you respond to God. It will change everything. What a comfort that God who places His love upon us sovereignly, calling us to Himself in love by election, is the same God who in love is going to use a variety of afflictions, a variety of all kinds of hardships and trials to develop within our hearts what? Wisdom, perseverance, patience, and joy love for him and for others. May God, in his love, discipline us in ways that bring that fruit to bear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are never one to fail in this process of training your children. And so I pray for those of us who are here today, Lord, whose lives are in a very tough spot. And we are oftentimes tempted to question you. We are feeling maybe thoughts are going through our mind to say, I don't know, I'm not really, this is not working very well. I think I'm going to take a break from this idea of pursuing after Christ. But Lord, I pray that you'd use the discipline of fiery trials to draw us closer to you, to draw us deeper into your word, 
to draw us deeper into prayer, draw us into a life of discipleship that means that we are confident that you are at work and this is the way in which you're choosing to do it. We ask that you would forgive us, Lord, for questioning your dealings with us, just like we question our human father so often, thinking that they were not really acting toward us in love, when they really were. So, Father, change our hearts, we pray. Change our ways of thinking about you. And pray, pray, Lord, for those who are young fathers among us. I pray that they would persist, be patient, and consistent in their their seeking to apply discipline to their children in a godly and character-shaping way. Use them, Lord, powerfully, we pray. Give them grace. Lord, I pray for if there's someone here today who is really angry at you, disillusioned with you, and really not drawn toward you at all, and do not see you as a loving God, I pray that today they would see the cross and see how indeed the greatness of your love to rescue sinners by giving your own Son what we deserve is the most incredible expression of love ever. Open their hearts, we pray, to trust you and to follow Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.